did your new novel, Noir, start as all the best Noirs do with a dame? Some poor mug who's working in a motel or a hotel or waiting tables or he's at a gas station or he's sort of an aimless drifter and he and he encounters a dame that is not what she seems and everything just goes to hell. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever you are. Thanks for subscribing, streaming, or downloading and listening to us on your computer or tablet or phone. I'm Austin Titchener, one-third of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, and you're listening to this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, number 592, Christopher Moore's Noir. Our friend Christopher Moore, the author of such wonderful comic novels as Lamb, The Gospel According to Biff, Christ's Childhood Pal, Fool, The Serpent of Venice, The Stupidest Angel, Blood-Sucking Fiends, Practical Demon Keeping, Sacre Bleu, and many others, has a new novel coming out tomorrow, April 17th, 2018. It's called Noir, and I've had the privilege of receiving an advanced copy and reading it, and it's a wonderfully comic and weird and also surprisingly poignant book, all of which are hallmarks of a Chris Moore novel. Chris starts an American book tour this week, so he was good enough to hop on Skype with me a few weeks ago and talk to me about the inspirations for noir, which, as it turns out, are several. There's like two kinds of noir. There's the sort of the detective, uh, Philip Marlowe, Dashiell Hammett, Mickey Spillane kind of thing. And then there's the Jim Thompson, James M. Cain uh, David Goodis kind of noir. So that's sort of the model that I went from is, is, is the, the Jim Thompson model of, you know, a dame shows up and things look great for you for a while. Um, and then, oh my God, what is she up to? And, and so that's, uh, that's sort of where the model came with starting with the dame walking into the bar. And did you have the idea, did you want to write a film noir or were you reading a bunch of noirs or seeing a bunch of films and going, oh, wait, I bet I could do a spin on this? Well, you know what's interesting? Being on the Reduced uh, Shakespeare uh, podcast, I should tell you the honest story of how this book came to be. Is And I, had, I have spoken to, to you um, outside of recording about the idea that I wanted to do uh, A Midsummer Night's Dream as a murder mystery. And I had written a proposal for that. And as you know, because I know you've, you've seen way too many performances of Midsummer Night's Dream, that the, the dream aspect, the forest, can be anywhere. And that's why high schools love to do it, because you can wrap your kids in garbage bags and that's the dream. Or you can be 80s punk or glam or, or you know, Victorian English or, or whatever. I was going to have the, the dream aspect of Midsummer Night's Dream set in in um, Golden Gate Park in 1947 because I'm fascinated with that that time in the city because it was so so uh, such a transition and my agent uh, was negotiating a new book deal and you take a proposal into that saying this will be the next one and the other ones will be awesome too and he came back with I have a deal for you but they don't want this book right now so for the first time in my 30-year career, I actually I was on the phone with a congratulatory call from my editor that we had a new multi-book deal. And 
and I said, I understand that you don't want the book that I've sent the proposal. And she said, well, not next. We want something else. Did you have something else in mind? And I sort of started brainstorming. And I, and I know in film, they always have authors pitching books, but that's a Hollywood thing. You don't pitch books in the real world. Um, nonfiction, maybe a little bit, but you don't, you don't do it in my world in novels, mm -hmm. you do proposals. And so I suddenly had to come up with sort of on the spur of the moment, an idea for another novel. Um, and I said, well, I, I'd kind of like to write another, another whale book, maybe a killer whale book because they're smarter and it would be interesting. And, and, you know, she's from New York and doesn't believe in the outdoors. So she's like, no. Um, and, uh, so it did. So it was inspired in part by a dame. Okay, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so then I said, or I could do some sort of Dashiell Hammett kind of thingy, um, uh, sort of a noiry thingy, and and set it in San Francisco in in the late forties, because I had already done the reading for that, the research for that, and she, and she said, yeah, do the Dashiell Hammett kind of thingy, and I said, and I and I said, not the extensively detailed proposal for a novel I've already figured out. You want to give me the go sign on kind of a Dashiell Hammett sort of thingy. And she said, yeah. And I said, okay, this is publishing. So <laughs> that is, that's how I came to this. But via Shakespeare, I came to um, 1947 um, San Francisco. And that's how I ended up coming to the noir genre was that I've, I've always liked dialect, as you know, if, yeah, having read my Shakespeare books and my other stuff, I like working with language. And there was sort of this tradition of tough guy talk that that um, I think is best done by somebody who's not a noir writer. It was Damon Runyon, who's not mm. as well known now, but at one time was sort of a household wor world who wrote about all these mugs um, in Manhattan uh, in the 30s and 40s. And uh, he comes to us mostly these days from uh, Guys and Dolls. Right. Inspired Guys and Dolls. But in the 50s and the 40s, he was a household name. They had a Damon Runyon theater on the radio, and they did his stories. And all of his guys sort of talk in this, this sort of uh, pseudo-intellectual, tough guy. Everything's told in the present tense, but it's happened in the past. You know, so, so it's, it would be like... Austin and me are having coffee down at the at the diner and all of a sudden this guy comes in and so it's all present tense and so that's how I started with the idea of what I was going to do because I knew it would be a comedy I had the research done for 1947 San Francisco and um, I, I thought it'd be fun to do a funny tough guy novel well and it's one of the things that I love so much about your books is that they are um, um, the dialogue is so <laughs> fun and and it really drives the action and is revealing of character etc all the stuff that great dialogue does was there a challenge to make it a chris moore book do you know what i mean did you feel like oh i gotta tick the boxes it's gotta have some of this it's gotta have some of that some of that yeah yeah that's that's the 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 disadvantage i guess of having a uh, a rep I guess is that some people have expectations and, and, um, and I guess I'm okay with that at, at times, but it, but it's just another element of pressure that you go, Oh my, you know, you, you get the buy is you can sort of goof around a little bit more than somebody who's unknown. 
because people go, oh, I trust this guy. He's made me laugh in my own bathtub. <laughs> um, and so, but, but on the other hand, they're going to go, hey, something weird has got to happen here pretty quick or I'm not going to follow this. And, and that really was the challenge for this book because, you know, there were sort of a lot of balls in the air as there tends to be in trying to do the dialect and make it funny and everything. But then I had to have some sort of supernatural, extraordinary thing happen to make that uh, be a Chris Moore book. So yeah, there's, there is a, uh, you know, there is sort of a pressure to do that. And, and um, when I just ran sort of a, a general Google search, San Francisco, 1947, the strangest things pop up. And about the third page of Google, which exists, um, I saw this thing from a UFO conspir conspirator, conspir conspiracy fanatic, and there are many, that talked about the commander of Roswell, New Mexico, visited, and, and he was sort of in that tone of, we knew he was in San Francisco in March of 1947. And I went, and in and June of 1947 is when the crash at Roswell, New Mexico happens. Um, and I went, well, there you go. There you go. I didn't think that's what I was going to write about, but all of a sudden I've got the commander of Roswell in the same year that the crash happens in the city. And, uh, and that sort of set off what a, a large part of what happens in the book. I'm John Kavalik, artist of the game Munchkin Shakespeare, and I'm a huge geek and a Reduce Shakespeare Company geek, and you are listening to the Reduce Shakespeare Company podcast. Where can you RSE the RSE? Our last live performances of this spring 2018 begin on May 31st at the Pittsburgh Public Theater, where we'll be closing their season with performances of William Shakespeare's long lost first play abridged for four and a half weeks until July 1st, 2018. Also on Saturday, April 28th, you can see Reed Martin and I at the Bay Area Book Fest in Berkeley, California, talking about and signing copies of our book, Pop-Up Shakespeare, illustrated by the marvelous Jenny Maisel who will not be with us in Berkeley, unfortunately. If you can't join us in Berkeley either, Pop-Up Shakespeare is on sale worldwide. For more information about the Bay Area Book Fest, go to baybookfest.org. And we have a bunch of performances of The Ultimate Christmas Show and The Complete Works of William Shakespeare Abridged, scheduled for this fall of 2018, which we hope to get online as soon as possible. As always, the very best way to stay up to date about all of our worldwide performance dates is to sign up for the Reduced Reader, our email newsletter. Go to ReducedShakespeare.com and click on the link to subscribe and check out our touring page for specific box office, venue, and ticket information. And now back to my conversation with novelist Christopher Moore talking about his brand new novel, Noir. It feels perfectly natural for you to have written a, a, a noir book, one in fact entitled Noir, um, that's set in San Francisco because you've been living in and writing about San Francisco for for many of your books. Yeah. So was was it fun to 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 dive into a different part of this this kind of world? It, it was because the city 
sort of looks the same now that it did in 1947. So doing the setting was easy. You know, the atmosphere only had to be, you know, weather. You know, it was foggy and there was clearly more neon in those days. Um, but it there was a, a richness and a depth to all that went on post-war, during the war and post-war. And there had been a lot of, there's been a lot of uh, detective stuff written um in the early 40s set in San Francisco and, and written contemporary, uh, contemporarily. Um, so, but post-war, I don't know, I could give you a whole list of things that went on in the city, but it was fascinating as the demographics of the city changed extraordinarily. The way the city is now and what I've come to be used to, like the Tenderloin is sort of a sketchy neighborhood and it's been a sketchy neighborhood for 50 years. Um, but the reason it's a sketchy neighborhood happened in the in the 40s um, because all these defense workers were coming to the West Coast and the city knew that they had to have a place to live and that many of them were coming without families or they were young women whose uh, husbands or boyfriends had gone off to war and they were coming to work in the in the defense industry, building ships, mainly in the Bay Area. And um, so they set up these single residency hotels and they mandated in the city charter that they had to stay single residency hotels. Um, and so these, it was sort of almost a dorm situation that, um, that people would live in. Well, because that was mandated that you couldn't update those buildings, you couldn't just knock them down and make condos out of them. They're still single residency hotels. So the last places that you go before you're homeless is the Tenderloin. Wow. So 70, year, 70 years later, th this is all still there. Right. It's just in a different way. And I just read an article this week in the, in the San Francisco Chronicle about how they have this brand new sort of way to live, wherein these tech workers who can't afford uh, rent in a – because the San Francisco apartment, the average rent now, I think, for one bedroom is – $3,500 a month. Um, so I mean, people can't afford that even if they have a good job. So they now have this revolutionary idea of a dorm situation where you have your own room and you share a bathroom and a kitchen. That's been in the Tenderloin since 1941, you know, <laughs> and um, it comes to us from the 40s, as does health insurance through your employer. Like we, I, I know you grew up in the Bay Area. We know Kaiser as as a big HMO that's all over the the Bay Area, all over Northern California. Kaiser Permanente was a shipyard. Hmm. They built ships in 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 Richmond, and in order to attract uh, defense workers, you went. Oh, and not only that, all your health care will be paid for right through Kaiser. And so the shipyard's long gone, but the HMO maintains, and so sort of. What the American healthcare system is now started with World War II with these these defense they so needed workers. The Fillmore becomes, um, you know, which we know from the '60s being this venue for uh, for rock and roll and became world famous for rock and roll concerts. But the Fillmore um, was sort of a, a shanty town and it was also adjacent Japan town. Well, when the Japanese were shipped off to internment camps in World War II um, and all these African-Americans were coming from the South, guess where they went to live? All those empty houses in Japantown. And that, and so the Fillmore and, and what's known as the Western Edition became 
a largely ethnic neighborhood, African-American rather than Japanese, and jazz happened there. Yeah. So you had Bird Parker and, and Thelonious Monk and those guys coming. And then you had this weird um, sort of confluence of the Japanese returning, and there's jazz clubs in their neighborhood now. So you have these these Japanese kids who are standing outside of uh, Bop City, you know, listening to Bird play saxophone, and, and you you have this clash of cultures or this homogenization of cultures. I thought that would be a cool thing to put in a book, but it's all subtext. You're about to head out on a book tour. Are those fun, or do you go, oh, I gotta, I gotta get back to my writing? Appearing with the people, the meeting the people every night, and signing books, and, and just talking to your readers, I love that part. Yeah. That part's awesome. The travel is brutal. Um, and and it, it's almost like an athletic event. I have to train for it. I, I work out harder. I watch my diet. I, you know, all the things, because if you've ever been sick on the road, you know, that's, you know, not something you want to do. And, um, so, so it's a, it's a twofold answer. I love meeting the readers and hearing what they have to say and signing books and stuff. I loathe the travel and, and I like travel as a, as an activity for fun, but I, there's so many cities. I've been to, I think, every major city in the U.S. over the years. Um, but some of them, all I've ever seen is an airport, a bookstore, and a hotel. Because you get in, you get out, and nobody gets hurt. Um, and and that's not fun. I mean, when I get an extra day in Chicago or Boston or, or you know, New York or something. New York doesn't count because they make me work when I'm there, no matter how many extra days I have. <laughs> um <laughs> Um, then, then it's fun, but, but, uh, so, so it's a twofold thing. I don't get any writing done. I'm, I really have a, a lot of admiration for writers who can write while they're on book tour. I can't do it. I'm too distracted and, and, uh, I'm not used to having to be anywhere at any given time. Right. So having to hit, you know, make it on time for a flight every single day and check into a hotel every single day and all that stuff is, um, and the publisher backs you up. They don't just send you out there with a shoe shine and a smile. You know, they, they, uh, they have people helping you, but uh, it's, still, it's still kind of brutal for someone who does most of his work in his PJs. <laughs> That's it for this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. For more information about noir or to find out more about Chris's tour dates or his many other fantastic novels, go to his website, chrismore.com. You can also follow Chris on Twitter, at TheAuthorGuy. Then send us your historical and Shakespearean inspirations via email to feedback at reducedshakespeare.com. You can also engage with us and other fans on Facebook or Twitter. You can find easy links to all these social networks at our website, reducedshakespeare.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Austin Titchener, and the RSC is now on Instagram too at Reduced Shakespeare Company. Thanks as always to the grit that makes the pearl Matthew Croak, web services by Ginger Power Limited, music by John Weber and Garage Band. Our random fan shout out this week goes to Danny Slowick. No reason, it's just random. Special thanks to John Kovalik, the creator and artist of Dork Tower Comics, the creator of the game Apples to Apples, and the illustrator of all the Munchkin games. I had a great chat with him in Madison, Wisconsin last weekend, which I can't wait to share with you on the podcast in a few weeks. And finally, thanks very much to you for listening. I'm Austin Titchener, 592-1776 of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. 
Sit down, John. Sit down, John. So wait a minute. Earlier in this conversation, you mentioned maybe a book about Midsummer, and I could hear all your readers going, "Ah, tell me more." And can you tell us anything about those ideas? Well, I'm, I am working on the third Pocket book. Pocket is the Fool from my book Fool, which is from King Lear. Um, and it's it's the Midsummer book. Unfortunately, I gutted the whole plot when I took out the San Francisco part. So it's been a lot more difficult than I thought it would be. And, um, you know, the first thing you learn at famous author school is don't have a whole bunch of characters whose name starts with the same letter because people only read about 30% of the characters they look at. So if you see a name that starts with an H, you just, you don't look and see whether it's Helena or Hermia. Um, and... And Shakespeare, because he wrote for that whole company of actors that he needed to keep working, has a lot of characters, and really more than's necessary for for a lot of uh, a, a lot of things. So that's what I'm working on now is trying to put the puzzle together of of killing somebody off in in a Midsummer Night's Dream. Huh. It sounds like you are reducing Shakespeare. Huh. Huh. How appropriate. <laughs> This podcast is a production of the Reduce Shakespeare Company. Reducing expectations since 1981. Go to ReduceShakespeare.com for performance dates, actor bios, email newsletters, and so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less.